Hello and welcome to QPod, QIC's Investor Insights podcast series. I'm Craig Valenzuela, Managing Director for Global Business Development, and each week we our via listeners to take 10 and get the latest economic insights from our in-house economics team. And good morning to our Chief Economist, Dr. Matthew Peter. How is it in sunny Brisbane today? Well, it's uh, it's a bit overcast actually, Craig. We've got a bit of a change coming through at the moment, but I think it's a lot better up here than it is down there still. Well, it's blue skies and sunny conditions in Sydney, Matthew, but of course, we're in lockdown. But on a brighter note, during this week was Australia's June quarter GDP outturn that was positive. Yes, positive and higher than market expectations. Matthew, was this something you were expecting? Well, we were expecting a positive outcome, but not as high as it came out. We had a uh, expectation like the market of 0.4%. Quarter on quarter growth came out almost double that at 0.7%, so quite a good outcome. Now, the economy, what it was telling us, Craig, was back in the June quarter, that is, that the economy was travelling very well prior to the Delta outbreak. Not only did we have uh, increasing growth rates, but that composition of growth was very strong as well. Consumer spending was holding up, uh, despite the fact that JobKeeper was rolling off in that quarter. But importantly too, business investment was uh, bouncing back and we had quite strong capex on equipment and machinery. Yes, and Mr. Frydenberg's definitely the focus at the moment of the Australian press when it comes to JobKeeper. Unfortunately, though, Matthew, that is yesterday's news now, as you suggested, and, you know, as they say, today's fish and chip wrapper. And whilst Frydenberg continues to celebrate this GDP outcome, everyone does seem to agree that the September quarter will see a hit to GDP. With the premiers fighting over those border controls at the moment, what September GDP outcome are you preparing for, Matthew? Well, you're right, Craig. The hit to the September quarter, it's already baked in somewhere between minus 2.5 and minus 3%. Our current forecast splits the middle almost with minus 2.7%. But of more interest is whether we will avoid a recession by getting a positive outcome in the December quarter. Now, this depends entirely on our ability to exit lockdowns, and that depends itself on how quickly we can get those vaccination rates up to that 80% level. Now, in our estimate, given the current rate of daily vaccinations uh, across the nation, the 70% threshold should be attained towards the end of October and 80% by November. Now, the ACT, Tasmania and New South Wales, they're all expected to be the first regions to reach the critical targets. But you must remember that it's the national average which must reach 70% and 80% threshold targets before each phase of that national transition plan out of restrictions is triggered. Now, New South Wales, Victoria and the ACT lockdowns now, right now, Craig, are currently costing the Australian economy over $2 billion per week. Wow. Yep, that's high. This will fall to an average of $1.5 billion a week over the December quarter as restrictions ease. However, if we hit our vaccination targets, and this is the big if, if we do that, Craig, and we reopen in the second half of the fourth quarter, the December quarter, we should be able to post a reasonable bounce back in growth. Our current forecast is for uh, 0.7% growth in December quarter, just like we had in June, with even a more substantial bounce in the March quarter of 2022. And good news, Matthew. I think overnight there was a huge shipment of Pfizer that landed in Sydney, but interestingly, one that we have to actually pay back later on. 
You're listening to Craig Balanswala and QIC's Take 10 podcast, where our chief economist, Dr. Matthew Peter, is taking us through the current economic foresights that are shaping your investment outlook. Matthew, this week I attended the AIST annual conference, uh, the Superannuation Conference, and the macroeconomic session covered the question, will the coronavirus have long-lasting implications? Now, AMP Shane Oliver presented a number of challenges, being increased political tensions, bigger government with more public debt, risks of higher inflation and more money printing, investment noise, airline retail and office demand impacts, and lower immigration, whilst also highlighting three positives being lower for longer interest rates, technology penetration leading to a stronger productivity outcome, and finally, the roaring 20s. So, were there any challenges he overlooked, Matthew? Uh, Craig, uh, just remind you, the Roaring Twenties were followed by the Great Depression. But now, look, Shane identified all the usual suspects. But I do notice one thing. You know, Shane nominates lower migration as a negative, particularly with respect to Australia in his presentation. But there will be global consequences to lower international mobility of workers or lower international migration more generally. A reduction in international migration is effectively limiting the flow of workers across international borders and therefore reducing the transfer of skills and knowledge as well as lowering the level of the workforce in many developed nations such as the US, UK and of course Australia. Now developing economies that have difficulty managing disease will even be worse off as their health systems remain pressured and their labour force participation rates and productivity levels suffer. And that could lead to an ongoing supply chain disruption that we're seeing already and consequently rising costs. Now, prior to COVID, we were already witnessing a move away from globalisation or international trade due to the trade wars with China. Now, COVID-induced supply chain disruptions, if continued, could see that push to onboard industries accelerate and place further pressure to reduce international trade. The result would be even lower productivity and even higher costs as countries are forced to shift resources from their efficient industries to less efficient industries in order to produce commodities that were previously being bought from developing countries that were the low cost producers. Now, Matthew, we hear that some of our listeners like to listen to us whilst jogging. So as they hit those hills, do you have a feel for how the big long-term costs of COVID will be? Well, it is um, it is a hill rather than a mountain, but uh, we estimate that the global economy will be smaller by about three percentage points in the long run than it would have been without COVID. And notwithstanding our high immigration rates, Australia should fare a little better because of its strong health system and access to vaccines, of course, but it still will register a long-run drop in GDP of about 1.5%. Matthew, we're starting to see the damage of the Delta variant on both social and economic outcomes. That's a pretty well-known fact. But we're also starting to see things like the Delta strain as a recent example of new entrants of the COVID virus. So it begs the question, what risks do further mutations of the COVID-19 virus mean for the long-term prospects of our economy? Well, just on the Delta Plus, Craig, to start off, now, whilst I'm not an immunologist, but what I read is the Delta Plus variant, of which, in fact, there's a number of mutations, is is no greater a problem than Delta in terms of both the rate of infection or its ability to evade vaccines. But that's not to say a mutation won't develop. That is a problem. 
Now, exiting lockdowns in that situation is going to be more difficult, and that leads to those problems that we just discussed about, uh, you know, the impact on the labour force, on supply chain disruptions and whatnot. So it does have the effect of prolonging the long-term impact of COVID. Now, the way to stop mutations, of course, is to stop the spread of the virus, and the way to stop the spread of the virus is to increase the rate of vaccination, both here but also around the globe. My last word on this will be, though, Craig, that just as the virus isn't static, neither are our scientists and their ability to adapt vaccines to new and more virulent variants as they emerge. You're listening to Craig Valenzuela and QIC's Take 10 podcast, where our chief economist, Dr. Matthew Peter, is taking us through the current economic foresights that are shaping your investment outlook. Matthew, we are at a bit of a crossroads of an economic divergence between the East and the West, where those who have those high vaccination rates and ability to deploy boosters quickly might have a significant economic advantage. Fair comment? Well, fair comment in the short term, as you know, those developed economies are more readily able to avoid costly lockdowns and breakdowns in their health systems with the economic costs, of course, Craig, that flow from such a situation. However, We shouldn't be lulled into a false sense of security, extrapolating an individual country's ability to vaccinate and return to normal economic conditions if a large part of the global economy has low rates of vaccination. As as we've just been discussing, Craig, here and also in previous podcasts, low vaccination rates in developing economies, such as those in our region here in East Asia, which of course is the manufacturing hub of the world, as we continually say, it can lead to supply chain disruptions that have consequences for developed economies like ours, whether they have high vaccination rates or not. Absolutely. And Matthew, can we finish off on the central bank and their actions? Because last week you did heap some praise on the world's central banks and their pandemic management. This week we had the Fed do their Jackson Hole speech. Has the Fed given us any clear interest rate or quantitative easing direction? Well, Craig, let's make no mistake. Powell and the Fed want to tighten monetary policy. At the moment, they've got two policies at work. One is setting the Fed funds rate, that's in order to control short-term interest rates, and quantitative easing or bond purchases, and that's to control the medium to long-term interest rates. Now, Powell first wants to reduce the quantitative easing program and allow for a gradual steepening of the yield curve. But what he wants to do is avoid a 2013-style taper tantrum. He wants the taper this time to be a non-event. Now, at Jackson Hole, he announced that he will keep the Fed funds rate at the lower bound for some years to come. Probably we won't see the first rate hike until 2023, but he will announce some tapering more than likely before the year end. Now, this is actually a very different approach to the 2013 episode where then Fed Governor Ben Bernanke failed to give guidance on the Fed funds rate, leading markets to expect rate hikes as well as QE tapering, which exaggerated market expectations on the pace of Fed tightening, of course, or a blowout in bond yields at the same time. Now, is Powell's approach working? Well, it's too early to tell. So far, bond yields have largely gone sideways. So the real test is yet to come. That'll happen later this year. Thanks, Matthew. Three very big themes that we covered off today in the podcast. Uh, In summary, Whilst we have enjoyed a very positive GDP print uh, for June, this doesn't capture the full effects of the COVID lockdown, where we can expect a really large 25 to 3% hit. And yes, unfortunately, a negative print is highly likely in September. The big question is what happens in December. 
And the long-term effects of COVID globally are estimated to be around 3%, which is a staggering impact. And finally, not a lot of direction provided by Powell as the Fed is looking to balance a stimulus-fueled economy with the ongoing volatility COVID is causing amongst a population with volatile vaccination rates. But it does seem tapering is clearly on the radar. I'm Craig Valenzuela for QIC's QPod. Thank you for listening and have a super weekend.